Hey, what's up? So, Avalanche. Let's talk about it. What's, what's an avalanche? The snow comes down real fast, fierce, gains momentum. But I'm not talking about the natural disaster. Or if it's not really a disaster, I guess, if no one's around. But anyways, avalanche, what is it? You've heard about it. Now you're going to hear some more. It's an open source platform for launching decentralized finance applications, right? DeFi. That's what you want. Developers who build on Avalanche can easily create powerful, reliable, secure applications and custom blockchain networks with complex rule sets or build an existing private or public subnet, right? I think what you should do right now is stop what you're doing, even if it's listening to this podcast. Stop. Pull over. Go to the gas station if you need to. Go to a subway. There's a subway like everywhere. There's always a subway. All right. Right, there's always a Kroger. Just stop in a parking lot somewhere. Go to avalabs.org to learn more. All right, stop. Go to avalabs. That's A-V-A-Labs, L-A-B-S, dot org. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure decentralized networks we dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks welcome back to hash it out I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. Today's co-host is going to be Dean Eigenman. Say what's up, Dean. What's up, Dean? There's Mr. Dean, so you know his voice. And today we're interviewing Fetch AI, Toby Simpson, which is the COO of Fetch. Uh, Dive a little more into uh, what AI is and how it could potentially help the blockchain industry or how those two technologies fit in together. Toby, why don't you do the normal thing and give us an introduction as to kind of who you are, where you came from, and... um, a quick overview of kind of what Fetch AI is and what it's trying to do. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm I'm Toby. I'm co-founder and COO of Fetch. Um, in various previous lives, I was involved heavily in computer games production and design. Um, and this is how I got to learn all about the dangers and evils of software complexity and uh, different approaches to dealing with it. And that set in, in motion a long path through various different approaches to, to managing all of that. Um, AI, artificial life, uh, and some very other very interesting things before I ended up uh, at blockchain looking at how that can act as a mechanism for providing huge scale in these systems. I'm curious about that. Like, at what what point you have, like, I guess, professionalism in the concepts of kind of AI, what it's used for, how it's used, where the bottlenecks are, what part of blockchain do you think marries well with this? Why is it Why is it something useful to bring in and try and use these technologies together? Well, that's actually a very interesting um, perspective. It took me a while to fully appreciate what, what this is all about. One of the things I was doing back in the 2000s was building massively multiplayer online games. I was using an agent-based approach to doing that to give me huge scale. Um, but one of the things that I couldn't fix was how would I provide integrity in a network that was effectively peer-to-peer as opposed to client-server. 
So even though I was able to build software that would scale in a linear fashion, there's only so much in the way of CPUs and memory that you could throw at it at the time to give you that linear scale. Eventually, you'd just run out of computing power, and that would be the end of the line. Now, if you make that a peer-to-peer -peer network, then you've got big trust issues um, because you can't create an incentive mechanism where it is more profitable and productive for people to be honest than dishonest. Uh, and you can't get the kind of scale and bring on board machines and have them go in and out uh, without that hugely affecting the system that you're building. And what occurred to us, uh, my uh, uh, fellow co-founder and I, when we were looking at how we would solve the problem of bringing the entire economy to life. So how would we create autonomous economic agents? Yeah. Everything, IoT devices, data, people, services, you name it, we'd create one of these. You're looking at populations in, in, in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of these things, uh, and, and scale will be a problem. Uh, and then we worked out that in fact, uh, when you combine um, AI, when you combine this agent-based approach, and when you, you throw in blockchain to this as well, you can create a network or effectively a digital world that can be as large as you want. And you can keep making it bigger by adding more machines. And you've got a fundamental incentive mechanism that underlies all of this, that encourages people on average to be honest rather than dishonest. Uh, and that creates that environment where you can keep making this world bigger to take into account the kind of things that you want to throw at it. When you say agent-based approach, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, no, this, is a, this is part of the journey I guess I took um, back, in, back in the early 90s, writing computer games on the Commodore Amiga and uh, pretty much drowning under 100,000 lines of 68,000 uh, assembly language mm -hmm. and beginning to wonder whether or not I was ever going to ship the product. Uh, and in the end, the very moment that it worked and didn't fall apart, we got that on a disc and on a bike and to the duplicators um, very, very quickly indeed on the basis that if you touch it anywhere, it would fall apart. And that was because the, the approach that I was taking was, I see a problem, I write software to solve that problem. And that's a very top-down approach. It's a very human approach, I might add, mm -hmm. because we do like to know the problem that we're solving. It's not a natural position human beings to put in place the components that will allow the problem to solve itself. And I got to learn about this seeing uh, a colleague of mine building um, these worlds where he made all of the individual components, all the individual characters wandering around their own autonomous unit, he called them autonomous um, agents. Um, and they would go around doing their job. Now, in, in a medieval type world, if uh, you killed all the people that were dealing with burying everybody, then suddenly all the bodies would pile up. So what you did had consequences. But the most interesting thing was you didn't have to script those consequences in advance of them happening. It's like Lego. Um, nobody at Lego needs to know what you're going to build with it in order for you to be able to build it. Uh, and, and one of the advantages of this approach is you end up effectively with a large population of very simple things rather than a smaller population of very big complicated things. Um, and you allow them to solve the problems themselves. So it's very, very scalable. It's very reliable um, because you're no longer dealing in, in vast amounts of software. You're dealing in smaller amounts of software. So it's easier to make it hold itself together. Um, and it becomes very flexible. This is the kind of thing that can adapt itself in, in, in real time. And that agent-based approach uh, serves um, large, complicated systems very, very well. Uh, and when we came to, to looking at Fetch, and um, we were thinking about um, how we would get that scale, uh, we 
changed them from just autonomous agents into autonomous economic agents and allowed these agents effectively to negotiate and trade with each other and built this large-scale decentralized world in which they can find each other and then talk to each other. And of course, various aspects of, of, of AI are part of, of that search and discovery process, which is very, very exciting. Um, but it means then that the problems that are potentially solved you don't have to know about in advance of bumping into them. And that's a really, really exciting way of, of, of making things happen. So bringing this entire thing together, uh, what's like the main use case you see Fetch uh, being used for? Like just for our listeners and for me to like kind of understand really what the vision is of Fetch. Anything that involves spinning a large number of plates is potentially something that Fetch technology can do. Uh, and that is a very important part of all of our lives. So transport and mobility is a very, very good example. Um, it's a good example because there's an enormous number of moving parts um, and they're very, very difficult to coordinate. And, and human beings, uh, we, we allow a lot of hassle to go over us without complaining. But the reality is conducting that orchestra of pieces is actually really difficult to do. Uh, and when you think about it, if you conduct, uh, if you're going through any large scale journey um, uh, across the world or even down the street, the number of things that you have to worry about in order to be able to get from A to B without something going wrong is, is enormous. And the responsibility for worrying about all of those things lies very, very squarely on your shoulders. Um, now, of course, what you don't have um, and, and what I don't have is an army of personal assistants who are going out in front of me solving all the problems before I get to them, uh, effectively rolling out the red carpet for me. But when you start looking at this autonomous economic agent approach, well, suddenly everybody has this because these are digital entities that are acting on their own behalf as well as on behalf of what they represent. They're able to talk to other digital entities in order to solve problems. So they can come to you with a solution um, uh, before you even know that you've got a problem to solve. You, uh, you mentioned the, the term um, autonomous economic agents. I, in the past, have referred to smart contracts as that. That's a better name for smart contracts than the Ethereum blockchain. But what you're referring to is something different uh, based on, I would say, scale. Can you kind of at least I think you are. Can you? Can you? Can you? Yeah. First, I mean, like, do you do you believe that's a, that's an appropriate description of what smart smart contracts are on the Ethereum blockchain, and how are what you're talking about different from that? Well, um, of course, interestingly, smart contracts. I mean, I, I, lots of people are trying to come up with better names for them because, because they're not necessarily particularly very smart or very contract looking, um, depending on what perspective you you look at them from. Um, but and, and certainly very large amounts of code in there would be economically unviable to operate. Uh, and they're not autonomous in that they can take decisions without something going on um, in the outside world. Now, there are services and bits and pieces that are attached to that that allow some degree of autonomy to be achieved. But unless they're interacted with, they don't particularly do anything. Mm -hmm. So what you can't do is have them actively going around looking for um, potential right. um, people who the might want to take the value that they have. Exactly. Uh, and, and the thing about autonomous economic agents, from, from my perspective, is that these things act on their own behalf. Now, I mean, we live in a, an extremely wasteful environment. Um, and data is, is one of the grandest examples of that, of course. 
um, in that the amount of data that's out there that might be useful is vast. But of course, uh, you can't incorporate it because you don't know it's there. And you wouldn't know where to find it anyway, even if you did know it was there. Um, and what we uh, were looking at is, well, actually, if you could attach an autonomous economic agent to all of these data items, then they could effectively go out and sell themselves. They could go looking for um, other agents that might want that data and then get into a negotiation and potentially a transaction as a result of that. Uh, and I, I got into a, a very interesting conversation with somebody who runs a large scale um, uh, um, a telecoms network in Southeast Asia who's saying that, well, uh, because of data protection uh, uh, laws, they're collecting a huge amount of data every day. But of course, 30 days later, it has to be deleted mm -hmm. in, the, in, in a lot of cases. And that's potentially as, it's several petabytes a day of data that's coming and going and never getting used because the cost to exploit it exceeds its value. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, if you can effectively cheaply, if not at almost zero cost, attach agents to all of this data and they can go out looking for um, uh, possible uh, places where that could deliver value, then that changes the economics of that entirely. Okay. Um, because then alongside, alongside your existing uh, mechanisms, you've now got all of these um, autonomous economic agents rushing around finding people who might want that data. Uh, now that works across the economy which is also um, wasteful in other ways as well. Um, empty hotel rooms, uh, last minute cancellations, causing things to, to go unfilled, uh, shipping containers that aren't as occupied as they should be, uh, not the most effective routing and usage of energy. Uh, and when you start boiling these down to sort of a hyper-local approach of having these agents uh, negotiating with each other to get this stuff done, then you're potentially looking at something very, very interesting. You're trying to make a lot more out of what we already have, uh, which is uh, pretty good from an efficiency perspective as well. So let's talk about the architecture here. Like, how do how, how do you make these agents, and then how do they how do they fit into a blockchain? Okay, so um, there's a bunch of bits and pieces involved. Yeah. Um, the we've got the uh, agent framework that we've built that allows people to uh, create these agents, uh, and that gets easier and easier to use all the time. Um, and there's going to be visual tools for that as well, because what we want to be able to do is make it so. I mean, for 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 those for those of us who've used Scratch, for example, as a drag and drop um, mm -hmm. instant programming language. Um, seeing or watching children build uh, amazing things out of that very, very quickly is, is incredible to watch. And, and it just goes to show that actually what is usually a very complicated um, programming task can be broken down into components that are easy to use. We want to do this, the same thing with um, agent building um, so that anybody who's got a data source or something that they want to potentially um, uh, get out there and, and, and monetize can do so very easily with a drag and drop. So that's the agent framework and the associated tools. Um, on top of that, we've got this thing we call the Open Economic Framework, which acts as a decentralized search and discovery. Um, this is where agents connect in order to be able to find each other. Um, there's a number of ways they can do that. One of the very interesting ways they can do that, other than geographical search, like I am here, what's around me, um, is uh, these semantic searches, which is a, a great application of, of, of AI, where you use dimensional reduction um, to uh, effectively position um, a description of yourself uh, in and amongst everybody else's descriptions. Mm -hmm. And of course, it turns out that uh, if you are relatively near in this strange semantic space to somebody else, the chances are you're, you're related. 
um, this this can be seen. Uh, um, this is this is seen in a lot of um, um, AI applications for trying to do, for example, recognizing characters that are drawn. Um, you build a model from it, do a dimensional reduction, and then if it's near to um, the key one that you want, then it probably is that one. Um, so that gives you a semantic and a geographic search, uh, and that's um, active uh, or can be active as well as passive. Um, but of course, all of that involves computing time. Um, and uh, under, underneath all of that, uh, you also need to be able to transact. These, these agents need to be able to negotiate with each other, and then they need to transact. And that's where um, the blockchain comes in, because that provides, of course, um, the method by which those transactions can take place. Um, but also it provides um, the underlying incentive mechanism for people to scale and build that network and provide that search and discovery um, system because those high computational load tasks, particularly ones relating to um, AI, uh, are going to cost and they, they, they cost in, in tokens in order to do that. Okay, so we have, let me try and rephrase that a little bit or re repeat it back to you. Uh, you have a framework for creating autonomous agents. We'll say that's that, and, and you're working on making yep. that put drag and drop so that people can make agents based on whatever criteria they have that that's relatively easy to use and they can deploy somewhere. That somewhere is, is a market in which they can discover each other either geographically or through some semantic location, which is like, you know, I do this, 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 what are other things that do something similar? And then those things are able to transact with each other on some blockchain, uh, which provides transaction and verification and so on and so forth. What is that blockchain and how does it work? And who are the agents that are okay. that are that are uh, operating on it and doing some type of consensus? Okay, so we've um, got uh, out there at the moment. We've got uh, an existing mainnet and we've got a new one coming up um, early next year. Uh, and we're about to be running a whole bunch of uh, incentivized test nets. Funnily enough, the first one starting tomorrow. Um, where we're unrolling um, all of the key technology pieces that, that lead to a position where all of those systems are actually um, working uh, in their entirety for the first time. Um, so uh, the, the blockchain is very tightly integrated with the agent framework. Um, that's been a key part of this right from, from the beginning, when people will be able to fire up these agents and, and allow them to work um, straight away. Uh, we, it is a uh, proof of stake um, consensus mechanism, um, and we're, we've got a sort of a unique approach to this uh, related to, uh, we call it minimum agency um, consensus, to avoid those those issues where too much responsibility clumps into too fewer people, because that's a very important thing. Obviously, with the agents, which is the key thing that we're enabling with this, um, it's, it's important that these agents are, are able to be able to uh, transact at quite a high rate. Um, and one of the reasons why um, it's not possible for, for these agents to, to live on a network like Ethereum at the moment is that if you've got many, many thousands, if not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of agents all doing their work, um, then there are a lot of transactions going on. And they're potentially quite low value transactions as well. Um, so if you're buying up um, lots of weather information from uh, um, uh, surrounding sensors, then you're not going to be paying a huge amount for that. So it's quite important that the transaction costs um, uh, scale with that too, so that all of these these agents can can get their work done. 
So, so it's a combination of technologies, effectively, in order to be able to deliver this. Uh, and you know, there are great, great shoulders to stand on out there um, with with all of this stuff. Um, and smart contracts are a very important part of an agent's work um, for what we've been building, for example, with our decentralized delivery network, uh, where and we, we refer to that as delivering people, pizzas and packages um, instead of individual siloed businesses. Why shouldn't you be able to uh, coordinate delivery of everything, but without a centralized dating agency to do that? Um, that uh, uses smart contracts throughout its process to handle um, escrow for uh, a transfer of information across, but also verification and dispute resolution. Um, so all of these key pieces of technologies uh, and been able to operate them in an entirely decentralized way are important for building these large scale um, agent based applications um, because the, the DDN wouldn't work without them. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've been particularly excited to to be building and, and demonstrating to people relatively recently uh, and got some very exciting stuff coming up from that um, in, in November. So I assume you're familiar with um, SingularityNet. Uh, if you aren't, that's fine. But if you are, then my main question would be, what makes this uh, different than something like SingularityNet, which is quite an OG crypto project that I believe did some, or from what it sounds like, did something quite similar to what you guys are working on. Um, which aspects of that uh, are you, you thinking are similar? The entire thing just seems, I'm, I'm not All right. the most uh, in-depth person when it comes to similarity. No, that's fair enough. Um, the, the, the autonomous economic agents perspective that we're taking is, uh, a, a, there are a lot of people who are looking at this from a data or an AI marketplace perspective. Yeah, that, I think um, that's, that's right, um, and and you know that's 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 an extremely important thing to be able to do. You know, if lots of people have different aspects of um, AI and machine learning, and you want to be able to connect them together effectively so they can make uses of the services that they have, um, then then that's a very important service to provide. Um, and of course, we can do all of that with our autonomous economic agents as well, because they can provide those AI services and they can find each other on on the network um, that, that we have, either by approximation through the semantic searches or geographically to find things that can um, crunch numbers that are, uh, are relevant to you in, in, in whatever context that you want. Um, but the the actual approach of building these autonomous economic agents and having them actively deliver their value uh, and and go out there and find each other and trade, negotiate, and build bigger applications out of each other uh, is, uh, as far as we're aware at the moment, uh, unique to the Fetch AI project. Okay. I'm looking at, I'm curious about the I agents. would add one. No, sorry, go ahead, continue. Yeah, I was going to say, I would add one thing on, the, on that one, incidentally, that, um, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that's really important about this space, uh, but, none of these things operate in isolation uh, and as we've discovered blockchain isn't a thing all by itself it gets very exciting when you start combining it with other technologies like like ai and um some of the other cryptographic technologies for verifiable credentials and other bits and pieces it's a combination exercise and there are a huge number of different applications that can be built out of these technologies when you arrange them in different ways and it's not necessarily a case of saying it's this one or that one um, it's a case of interoperability and allowing the unique functionality and the unique abilities of all of these different projects to be able to interact with each other in a meaningful way. Um, agents, for example, can act as gateways. They can act as gateways between networks, gateways between the inside world and the outside world. 
um, to allow all of those features to be incorporated into agent-based applications. Uh, and, and that kind of thing is also very exciting. And I think we're beginning to see a lot more of this going on right now. And I'm very excited by that. Uh, as, as more of us are collaborating to see how we can combine the things that we have in order to build interesting new um, technologies or capabilities. I couldn't agree more with that statement in terms of um, kind of the combination of these, what I would consider exponential technologies and what new things we can build, uh, uh, either like building things better than they previously are or, compl or, or completely new things that could have been built previously because we didn't have the technology. Um, mm. What I, and, I, and I like that you're exploring the space, what I, but I'm, I'm also very concerned when people start doing that, um, if they're not learning from the key insights of what these technologies should be used for, or what they're providing. And so like I, when I look at the blockchain in like integrations into projects, uh, sometimes it's, it seems unnecessary. In my opinion, a blockchain is basically useful for providing distributed trust uh, and allows for, and then like allows for features like uh, digital scarcity and ownership transfer of agents on that, on that blockchain. But how that trust is created based on the actors who are participating in consensus is incredibly subtle and yes. scaling problems associated with um, what they're coming into consensus with and uh, how those agents who are doing consensus need to keep track of the stuff as well as maintain data availability of the entire blockchain for those who aren't participating in consensus is also quite subtle. And we're not seeing that, be, like we're not seeing the solutions to those problems until only recently as we've seen some of the blockchain, uh, the larger blockchain projects start to fill up in capacity and then have to deal with this stuff. I, so my question is like, who are the participants on the blockchain level why are they participating and the kind of like what types of things they need to keep track of and do you see those becoming a problem later on down the line well firstly i i i agree on a couple of um uh, well on, on more than one level with, with what you've just been saying um one point there is that you know, obviously blockchain has a particular um, application that, that we all collectively perceive and understand and uh, it, the way in which that a, a, um, is applied is is indeed very subtle in some cases, and it's one of those things that with all of those individual um, parties involved, uh, um, a very delicate incentive mechanism. But it's easier to upset it than it is to just uh, make it work better. If it was possible, as we all know, if it was possible just to increase the speed of something by a hundred times uh, very quickly, uh, people would have done it. Um, and uh, there there is something. Um, uh, uniquely workable about um, proof of work with the exception of the uh, energy costs about it um, that's just very hard to argue with um, and in the, it does the job it does exactly what it says it's going to do uh, and it works reliably um, and, and when you start looking and we've seen this with different proof of stake um, mechanisms that's actually much harder to get right and people are exploring a bunch of different mechanisms for doing that and I'm not sure all of the mechanisms or all of the answers have been dug out at this point uh, and people are still discussing um, uh, some of those those issues involved. And it's very interesting to watch that that play out. And I'm pretty sure that collectively we're right at the beginning of that journey, and certainly nowhere near the end of it. Mm. Um, and an understanding um, the economics, in particular, of what goes on with uh, who's incentivized to do what, why, and when, uh, is 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 also a complexity. I'll pick up on the point where you talked about um, transferable um, 
uh, individual assets. And I guess that's a reference to non-fungible tokens as an example of that. And one of the things that blockchain does, that's actually very, very important for what we're doing, because certainly if you look at the decentralized delivery network, agents that represent um, hotels, for example, or um, uh, trains or planes or automobiles are faced with seats and rooms um, that uh, you need to be able to establish that you've got ownership of that particular thing that represents that thing on that day at that time. Uh, and that's a an asset that you need to be able to cryptographically prove that you're entitled to it and potentially that asset needs to be transferred to somebody else uh, and doing that in a centralized way is very dangerous doing that on a blockchain way is um, open and it's self-service trust for everybody involved also it's cryptographically unprovable that those things actually happened um, so uh, the, the blockchain isn't just uh, something that one bolts on for the sake of doing so uh, there are a bunch of different reasons why its unique capabilities, such as uh, um, transfer of ownership of uh, unique items and assets, digital assets or otherwise, ones that represent real ones, is extremely important. Um, and when you've got a network like that, obviously the incentives need to be in place to ensure that people actually uh, operate uh, all of those component parts. Uh, and that is... Uh, an, another aspect of trying to create something like this and, and making it work, and and I guess your your question, which is, uh, what are the what are the reasons why everybody would be involved in in doing all of these things, uh, is it, it is a very broad question. But um, you've got the transaction fees and you've got the um, consensus rewards for uh, providing the raw integrity of that network. You've got the fees from operations of all of the smart contracts. You've got the uh, fees for operating the decentralized search and discovery mechanism. Um, and it's one of those things where the more agents that want to be connected to the network, the more demand there is for the search and discovery system, because any one given search and discovery node is only capable of servicing a certain number of agents. Um, so uh, rather interestingly, certainly from the models that we produced, it shows that there is an incentive for further decentralization. Um, so you might, for example, start out with a search and discovery node representing all of London, and then um, the demand around um, the main airport uh, or main airports becomes high and someone creates another one to service agents that are, for example, connected to London Heathrow Airport, or someone might do the same thing for JFK. Um, and that creates a demand um, because there um, is a value for doing so and the, the rewards for setting up and operating those things. Um, exceeds the cost of doing so. It's a complex interplay, as as as, as, as we all know, <laughs> um, and uh, and I don't think anybody has all of of the answers. Um, and particularly when you're doing something that's potentially new, where we've got an additional customer involved here, which are the agents themselves, and also an additional layer to the network, which is the search and discovery system. So walk me through. Uh, say I want to participate, right? I would I would like to participate at the, at the base layer. I don't care about making agents. I would like to serve the agents by running some hardware somewhere. What are the what are the resource constraints? What do I need to do? What do I need to have? And in order to like participate at the base layer, in terms of like maybe like providing data for these agents or uh, participating in consensus, like you you said you're rolling out test nets. If I would like to participate yes. in this, can you help me figure out what I need to do in order to do so? We certainly can. Um, so if, if you're not interested in operating agents, 
Um, then one aspect uh, of that is operating search and discovery nodes. And this is something that uh, we're going to be very excited to continue rolling out over the coming months, where more and more of these nodes um, are there servicing agents in particular areas. The uh, computational requirements to run one of those is actually very, very low indeed. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you can just leave ticking around um, on, on a computer somewhere, providing a service to um, local agents at the, at the area or subject area that you declare. Obviously, operating full full network nodes and, and participating in, in, in consensus uh, requires a little bit more computing power, um, but it's very, very important that that is straightforward for people to take part in as well. So you've got those that are operating the fundamental network. You've got those that are operating the um, search and discovery nodes. Uh, and you've got those who are operating the agents. And actually, uh, building and deploying these agents is relatively straightforward. And uh, as we increase the language options, uh, we, we, we expect people, and we're already building supply chain stuff on Raspberry Pis, for example. We expect people to be able to run large numbers of agents on relatively small devices, um, which, which sit there and deliver their value, um, having been actively um, discovered or then um, just sitting there and waiting for people to, to, to find them. Um, so, so that's a relatively low cost and low effort thing to be able to do. Because um, as, as, as we all know, even from user interface experience, every single step that you put in the way, um, you lose people. I mean, you start with 100 people going in, two people coming out the other side. Uh, it's about making this uh, really easy, and it's about making adoption of this kind of technology something that operates non-destructively in parallel to existing um, um, business systems. And certainly that's one of the things that we've discovered when um, talking to people about uh, integrating autonomous economic agents into existing systems. Uh, it has to operate in parallel with what they have um, and not... Uh, cause it to be um, completely ripped out and replaced. It's about finding additional value and then figuring out how they can optimize those systems using this new technology. So there's lots of ways to participate. Uh, and the incentivized um, test nets is a journey to the mainnet version two, where we're um, focusing on different areas of the technology as we go through that uh, and uh, encouraging um, people to get involved. Uh, incentivizing that process. Um, and the first round of all of that is uh, um, heavily uh, focused on autonomous economic agents. It's a key part of, of, of the Fetch thing, but will also feature some stuff relating to governance um, and how uh, you make uh, decentralized governance work without involving everybody in every decision. So there's lots of interesting aspects of that um, that we're seeing discussed at the moment uh, in, in, in the community. Yeah, I saw a few of your, I didn't get a chance to read them, but I was looking at the titles and abstracts of some of the publications you've had as a company on a lot of this stuff. And it seems like um, you've done some real work here in terms of looking at some of the problems or constraints of how you're building this together and what might be viable solutions. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's right. Um, it's... When, you, when you've got a system with, with it, it's, it, well, to a certain extent, it's ironic when I talk about Fetch um, solving problems involving lots of moving parts when, when actually um, it's one collection of moving parts itself. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where you have to think about this stuff because when you're, when you're adding stuff um, to all of this, such as the, the agent economy and the search and discovery economy, 
then it's 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 something that multiplies, not not adds. Um, so you know, you add all these new things and the economic complexities and and some of the other um, issues of making all this stuff hold together grow very very rapidly indeed. Um, and it, it's extremely important to to do the legwork on on figuring that out. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very exciting to get to a point where we've done enough of the legwork to actually deliver the working system. Um, and and certainly over the the last um, half a year in particular, we've been building an increasingly large number of these agent applications and, and running them on our, our network and seeing them work and do their stuff. Um, from, from the delivery network to uh, um, a mechanism that we built to create an augmented reality for self-driving cars, um, stuff that we've done in supply chains and energy um, it is all um, uh, stuff that's possible now that we couldn't have done a year ago um, and and part of the, the this key journey now is introducing all of these technologies to a broader audience and allowing uh, people to to see what what they can build and how they can take part in in this new system I'm trying to wrap my head around this um, and and doing it in audio format especially for those who are listening is not uh, very easy so I'm trying to figure out how I can uh, ask a question that helps them get a mental idea of how data flows throughout the system. So, uh, for, for, to preference this, I did a IOT, probably the first IOT, um, proof of concept on Ethereum a lot of years ago, uh, where, uh, we would deploy basically, um, a device that captured environmental data around it. And then mm. encapsulate that and send it back to a smart contract, which logged it um, and allowed for another system to basically perform checks and balances on that environmental data uh, and alert based on various criteria given by the user. Uh, but that was a relatively, relatively simple setup, right? You have, you have this thing that captures data on some IoT device. It broadcasts it. As, as, a, as a transaction, it gets accepted and it logs it. So it's, and then someone just tracks all that stuff and alerts based on certain criteria. Um, there's no, there's no marketplace there. None of that stuff. So I'm like, where does the data come from for these autonomous agents? How are they cap? How are they doing things? How are they munching mm. that data? Where are they sending it and who's consuming it? And I, I imagine the marketplace is like, or that the autonomous agent is like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm transforming things. And this is the insight that I'm providing based on that information in some standard language, your semantic space, I think that's what you call it. And you have a marketplace for things that are like, I want that, I'm going to use it for this. And then you have this composability of building larger um, insight based on a lot of small pieces doing that type of stuff. Mm. And that's all done transactionally through the blockchain on like how they communicate with each other and transact value. Is that overall picture of what you're doing or have I, have I, have I, that was, have I misunderstood? No, that was, that was, okay. No, that was a that was a that was a very good picture of it. Um, but as well as, but, but it also it's a marketplace that works two ways. It's it's not um, uh, out there saying I've got this, you might want it. In a lot of cases, stuff comes to you and says, I think given what you're interested in, you'll like this. Okay, okay, that's so part of the that's part of the AI process. It's like not only am I just right, but blindly throwing things out and someone can consume it, I'm actually actively looking and saying you may want this too. Yes, uh, and and you're able to do that, and then. 
Um, so that means that agents that want something are able to sit there and wait potentially for uh, other agents to come along and say, well, given your profile, I think you want this. Um, that's and that's, yes, and what's really interesting about that is the mechanisms that do that delivery. If as a result of an introduction, a transaction takes place, then um, the, the underlying AI can effectively, it's a reinforcement learning system. The underlying AI can, can learn that that was a successful introduction. Because you've got some problems with, uh, as I was referring to earlier, this dimensional reduction thing. You know, if you flatten the planet Earth down to a, a, a disk, um, Sydney is a lot closer to London than it should be. Mm. Um, now, that's a mistake. Now, if you start making introductions based on that, they don't result in transactions. And therefore, those connections can be eliminated quite quickly as a result of um, uh, reinforcement learning acting on all of that. So there's lots of really interesting ways that this system can adapt itself in order to ensure that the right thing connects to the right thing. But it is that active stuff that that's a key part of it. Now, the agents themselves, I mean, I I think of them as little little digital life forms um, or uh, little computers in their own right. They're the ones that collect their data and they're the ones that hold it and they describe what it is that they have um, so that the search and discovery system can introduce them to other agents or other agents can find them based on that. Um, so the data lives there, and then when when the agents introduce to each other, there is an underlying agent um, framework-based peer-to-peer network that allows them to securely talk to each other, negotiate, and then um, transact. That's interesting. So the data lives with the agents. Um, there's an active and a passive approach to finding other agents to work with. Um, that uh, is is a key part of making all of this work. Uh, because, because you can do very, very low cost um, agents that represent data and just create them. All they need to do is advertise what they have. Uh, and then if there's any potential matches, they'll have that introduction made uh, automatically. And that's, that's reinforced uh, and that's great... by economically viable transactions as opposed to just yes, something economically that viable. Work. Yeah, that's right. And that's um, why we get in um, people that are a lot smarter than me <laughs> to, to work out the underlying economics of all of this as well, to build these models. I mean, you've seen, you said that some of the papers that you've seen that, that talk about some of these things, both from the economics perspective, the cryptographic perspective, and, and, and other aspects of this. Um, so we've had to assemble a team to make sure that, that all of that works. But of course, uh, in, in the end, uh, with any large-scale decentralized system, actually building it and running it um, and creating a mechanism where these things can can effectively error correct themselves over a period of time uh, is, is another important aspect of it. Absolutely. Um, did you have something there? Yeah, I just wanted to circle it back maybe and um, mainly ask you, because you said that you guys have been working on these use cases on top of Fetch AI, and you've seen some other people who are running um, agents on Raspberry Pis. What use case are you currently like most bullish about that you guys have either worked on, or what are you like really hoping to see in the next year that is being built on Fetch? Um, well, I'm, I'm hoping to be surprised as well, but uh, the thing that I'm personally most excited about is a decentralized delivery network. Um, because it, it is one of those networks where, um, as well as, as creating a mechanism for uh, connecting somebody who wants something um, uh, to uh, somebody who has it, 
either delivering a package or some food um, or delivering yourself, like for example, a decentralized ride hailing type um, thing. Um, it means that others, independent people, um, can create agents that uh, provide information that is important to that network and they can do so without the permission of anybody else and just take part. Um, so it's one of those things where the more people um, uh, take part in, in providing other information, traffic sensors, um, uh, information about signage, um, other bits of information that they can create agents and, and, and put in that network, uh, everybody benefits from, from that. And likewise, all the participants in the delivery network can uh, uh, deliver information relating to uh, traffic, um, hyperlocal traffic situations and other bits and pieces which are interesting to, to others. And one of the, the things that we discovered whilst uh, building and testing all of this stuff is those agents doing their work around uh, a, any given city provide a useful population of information sources because a lot of these uh, um, uh, uh, a lot of these things driving around and moving around. I mean, we walk around with um, mostly with these these mobile phones, which have an enormous amount of sensors, and you're not monetizing that information at all. But you could, and it turns out that uh, lots of little pieces of information that don't seem relevant when they're combined can become bigger pieces of information that are relevant. Uh, an example I used to give um, is that if a whole load of people on a London street suddenly put their phones away at the same time, chances are it started raining. Um, and there's an awfully large amount that you can potentially figure out from the actions of, of many. So you can get agents that buy up low value information from other people and combine it into higher value information. Uh, and, and that's where it starts getting interesting that uh, you, you start having agents attached to, to vehicles that are just running on your running on your mobile device that you're, you're carrying. And uh, people are, uh, or other agents are buying up that low value data and applying it through machine learning models and other things in order to provide other um, prediction services for where you should be at any given time in order to, to go places. Um, agents that represent different traffic zones um, and, and pollution zones and, and, and other bits and pieces like that can also contribute to uh, optimizing um, route handling and other bits and pieces along those lines. Um, so, so from that perspective, the DDN is really interesting because it solves it solves a problem, which is getting things from one place to 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 another um, effectively, uh, and it allows everybody to take part. and It uses a broad spread of the technology, and it's a complex optimization problem that benefits from um, very very local solutions. So yeah, that that's that's from from my perspective personally, that's the one I, I'm I'm most excited about. Dude, that does a pretty good job of explaining kind of like how these pieces fit together to, to provide a larger service. Um, I'm interested in this is, this may require some thought and I hope some transparency and what roadblocks you see in front of you. Um, what, what things are required to get you to the finish line to make this a success that you feel are very difficult to get over. Like where, where do you find the difficulties in making this something that's relatively ubiquitous? How do you get people involved and where is the bottleneck going to inevitably find itself? Like how, how are you thinking about these things and what have you come up with so far? Yeah, and, and, and you're right. And that, that, that boils down to adoption. Um, and, and I guess, I mean, you know, we've all seen, uh, seen these, these kind of things existing as, as, as problems. And I guess one comparison I would make is the approach that um, uh, Facebook took 
to rolling out their social network as a pro as opposed to the approach that um, Google took when when they did it. Uh, um, Facebook's approach was to get a complete domination in um, one Ivy League college after the other and get to the point where they had the adoption in that area so high that you couldn't not be involved. Otherwise, you'd be missing out on absolutely everything. And of mm -hmm. course, it meant that advertisers thought, well, you know, this is a no brainer. If we want to talk to people here, we have to do this. So it created its own business model as it went. Um, whereas if you just sort of bleed it out globally in one go, people turn up and discover they don't know anybody who's there. You never reach critical mass. And one of the problems with this, this agent-based approach is if we had a, a bunch of agents that were just in individual cities all around the world, it might be a high population, but there's not a big enough of population in any given area for it to actually be useful. That's a, there's, a, there's an example case of that with, um, I think it was one of the projects, I'm not sure how they're doing now, but they're rolling out like kind of distributed GPS. And that's wonderful if you can get everyone to do it across the globe, to provide <laughs> yeah. services. But if you can't, then you're going to have maybe you're going to have shit service in almost everywhere and maybe a few locations that don't. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and that's why, and this is one of the areas where, for example, the, the approach we're taking with designing the DDN is, is, is relatively, um, it lowers the risk of doing that because you introduce a network like this in a bunch of, of cities around the world. Say you go for um, London, Berlin, um, and, and a few other places. Uh, then it's much easier to achieve a critical mass in a small area um, or a portion of that enough for it to be useful um, to a, a broader number of people than it is to, to do that gradually in, in a non-organized way. So certainly when it comes to these, these applications, and we're also doing stuff relating to hospitality and supply chains, um, uh, healthcare, and a bunch of other bits and pieces, it's the, the approach that we're taking is to generate something that is genuinely useful to the people who are using it at the point it's deployed, but becomes more useful when more people start participating. Mm -hmm. um, and to, for, for the incentives to exist there then for people to participate, and then for, as a result of that, and the interesting data that's there, for there to be a genuine application for acquiring the, um, that data and processing it into something that's um, higher value. This has uh, great use in, in, in cities, for example, for, for working out um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of these the, uh, cities now are very interesting at trying to work out noise levels, pollution levels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually they've got a large network of, of vehicles that are driving around where a relatively small sensor um, set would provide them with all of that information. Um, for example, looking at where uh, mobile networks have best reception um, and uh, with a relatively small sensor pack attached to um, scooters, delivery vehicles, um, uh, and uh, and so on and so forth, you can actually end up with a surprisingly large amount of data that's really useful for a planning perspective. Uh, and one of the things that we did, an actual use case that we built um, for um, uh, optimizing self-driving vehicles, sorry, not self-driving vehicles, uh, electric vehicles and battery charging, we, we produced this huge simulation of these electric cars driving across Europe. Um, and we attached agents to the vehicles and to the uh, different charging stations. And by allowing those agents to hash it out between each other, we were able to optimize journey time down by an average of 30%, which is substantial. Mm -hmm. yes, uh, and that's because humans, yeah, humans are not good at this stuff. 
um, because you know what we're like, you run until you're on fumes and then you pop in uh, and you need to fill up. What we don't do well is thinking, right, if I stop now and I don't need it, do a 20 minute fast charge while I grab a coffee, which I really need and have a, a, a rest break, um, then actually uh, that's the most effective usage of, of all of this in order to get to my destination correctly. Um, and if everybody is working that way, then you end up with an incredible optimization. Uh, and, and we did this as well with uh, solving of mazes, of course, where, where the individual agents swap the small amount of local information that they have, you end up with a global picture very, very quickly. Uh, and, and these are the kind of things where a small number of agents are able to do a useful thing. So you take those charging posts and, uh, uh, and electric vehicles, it's a relatively small population, but one of the interesting things is putting agents in those is extremely low cost to do, if not almost zero, because it's a software thing on the hardware that already exists and is capable of running it. And that would operate in parallel and uh, to everything else. So it's relatively low risk to deploy. And part of the, the the, the hill that we're climbing on all of this and is is in trying to ensure um, that we take the pain and the risk out of uh, deploying these agents in existing infrastructure uh, in order to get to that point. So yeah, I, I would say that adoption is a problem. It's something that we've spent a, a huge amount of time thinking about. I think that we're taking a uh, an, an, uh, an approach that is certainly working so far to doing it. So that's one of, of the things that uh, uh, is 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 something that we have to uh, worry about, I guess, uh, in in the coming months. It's a great it's a great way to wrap up, and that's a good picture of kind of what you can be and the obstacles that it takes to get there. Uh, how can people reach out, get involved, participate, learn more? Um, uh, join our Telegram group. Go to fetch. Uh, go to our fetch.ai website. That'll link you through to um, uh, docs.fetch.ai. We've got all the stuff involving incentivized test nets. Um, putting a whole pile of documentation on over the next 24 hours for that. Different ways that you can take part, um, and 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 how all that's going to work. Um, and uh, come and build. Um, as you know, when 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 new technologies appear. Um, it's uh, you know, people are often surprised by the kind of things that that um, people build on them, uh, and we think we've got some some pretty interesting technology to work with, and we are really interested to see what what people will make of it. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you.